bittersweet would be the best word to describe the events of Genesis 21. Bittersweet. In it, we have one of the high points of Abraham's life, as well as one of the lowest points of his life. And both of those are related to sons of his. Isaac, the child of promise, will finally be born in this chapter. And Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn by the slave Hagar, will be sent away to the wilderness. The Bible never attempts to downplay the shortcomings of its heroes. Have you noticed that? The Bible does not shy away from the wrong, even wicked, evil things that its heroes do. And it gives us an unvarnished look at the failures of Abraham and Sarah right alongside their victories. This is not what you'd call hagiography, where you are writing the story of somebody's life in an attempt to make them look more than human and someone that everyone should emulate and look up to. The Bible is very honest, not showing us where they got it wrong as well as where they got it right. And this is comforting for us because there's not a one on this earth who has lived a perfectly righteous life, a perfectly heroic life. Every individual is faith mixed with failure. They are heroic mixed with cowardly. They are righteous mixed with unrighteous. Every family is that way. Every nation is that way. Every church body is that way. Sometimes we can have a tendency to build up the good attributes of a hero and ignore their faults. They're so wonderful. They're so great. We, we can't even allow ourselves to discuss where they might have gotten it wrong. There's also other times where we magnify the faults, and minimize the successes. We say it doesn't matter all the good things that he or she accomplished because look at what they said or what they did. The truth is that life is messy and people are complicated. The only proper perspective to have on this is the Lord's heavenly view, the way that God looks at people, looks at governments, looks at churches. And that's what we see in this chapter. We get God's perspective on the story of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael. Because God sees with a clear eye. God is above all that. God is holy. God is not a mixture of good and bad. God is all good. And he chooses to execute his own sovereign purposes in our lives. And as we grow as Christians, we ought to grow in our trust that that sovereign God knows what he's doing. Life is about getting on board with God's plan, not formulating your own plan and trying to make it work and getting God to help you as much as possible. That's how the pagans look at life. Ours is different. Now, you live in your head. <laughs> I live in my head. So it's easy for us to think that this is all that's going on, that I'm the protagonist of this world. But the thing is, the rest of us don't live in your head. The rest of us probably don't even think about your head very much, even those who are close to you. In reality, none of us is the centerpiece of the story. It's all about what God has done. This is the world God has made. It's His story. It's Christ's story. And that's what makes life worth living. There's that whole 
depressing, anxious, existential thought we can have where we get a clear look at our lives and we say, yes, I like this, I don't like that, this is what makes up me, but that's so small and petty and, and it doesn't even work half the time. What's the point of life? We're too small to judge our own lives by. We've got to look at God and trust that God's way is what makes life worth living, that we are part of what he is doing. We're going to see Abraham at a high point and also a low point in this story. Wherever you are in relation to this story, if you are at a high point, if you're at a low point, or if you're looking back at a high point and wishing you were there, or looking back at a low point and shuddering to think of what it was like, you've got to know that God is there, that God loves you, and that His plans for you are what is best. And if we can start looking at our lives through that lens, then some of the deepest and most serious questions we have will begin to be answered. So let's look at the first seven verses of this chapter. And let's read the story. We'll start with the high point. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Okay. Finally, after so many years of waiting, God fulfills the promise that he had made to Abraham. He gives him a son in his old age. We've been tracking what we've called the progress of the promise through the book of Genesis. And we've hung a flag on all those instances where God appeared to Abraham to reaffirm the promise of, of land, of blessing, and also of a child. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we had the initial call where God sent Abraham away from his family and into the promised land. In 13, verses 14 through 17, he's separated from Lot, and God told him that I'm going to give you all of this land. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, Abraham was growing financially, but he was not having any children, and God told him to number the stars. And it says that Abraham believed God, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In chapter 15, verses 8 through 21, God made the Abrahamic covenant with him and formalized legally what he had promised to do. In chapter 17, he was given the sign of circumcision and God told him, it's not going to be Ishmael, the son of your flesh, it's going to be Isaac, the son of promise. In chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, the Lord personally visited Abraham on his way to Sodom and said, you're going to have a son about this time next year. That was the last time that God spoke to Abraham about the promise. Now in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, Isaac is born. When Abraham was 100 years old, and therefore Sarah, his wife, was 90 years old. According to chapter 12, verse 4, it's been 25 years since they left Haran and came to the promised land. Because I said Abraham was 75 when he left. And it's probably been longer since they left Ur. Just as the Lord had told them to, 
They named the baby Isaac. God told them in chapter 17, verse 19, you're going to name the baby Yitzchak. Can you say that? Yitzchak. Which means he laughs. This root word, tzachak, is where that name comes from. And it's been associated with Isaac a lot. In chapter 17, verse 17, when Abraham heard he was going to have a child other than Ishmael, it says that he fell down and he laughed. In chapter 18, verse 12, when Sarah heard that she was going to have a child, it says that she laughed. Remember that? She said, I didn't laugh. And the Lord's like, yes, you did laugh. So this word, tzachak, has been in it a lot, talking about this baby to be born. And so that's what they name him. You see how Sarah speaks in verses 6 and 7. She says, God has made laughter for me. And it's interesting the way that that is written because you could either translate that God has made laughter for me or laughter at me, as in people are going to laugh at my expense. It's probably a positive term here. It's a positive story. But you can see how laughter just covers everything with this child. It's also interesting that when she says, everyone who hears will laugh over me. You'll remember Abraham's other son's name was Yishmael, which means God hears. It is possible that Sarah is making a subtle reference to how Isaac, the, the child laughter, would overtake the child God hears. But it's not clear. I think that it's, it's probable because wordplay is a big deal in the Old Testament. But let's be honest here. It's pretty hilarious to think of a 90-year-old woman having a baby, getting pregnant, nursing the baby. It's funny. It's the kind of thing that you'd, you'd find in a, in a supermarket tabloid somewhere. 90-year-old woman finally has a baby. Hence the name, Yitzchak, Isaac. It's a happy story. They're laughing with joy at God's hilarious blessing. It says in Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, Isaac was certainly not a child of Abraham's youth. <laughs> the opposite of that. But the joy that they felt was doubtless all the more wonderful for that. That the laughter that people would suppress when they heard the story would just put a smile on their face because they knew the story that was behind it. We've learned so much through Abraham's story. It's been up and down. First, he delayed then he jumped the gun, then he showed faith, and then he had a lack of faith, and then he had to wait. It's the same story that we all share. Our lives are full of ups and downs with the promise of God. And the trick is learning to trust that God has it all under control. The key phrase in this chapter is in verse 1, where it says, The Lord did as he had said, and the Lord did as he had promised. The Lord always does. If God said it, He's going to do it. If God promised it, it's going to come to pass. It doesn't matter what you're waiting for. You might be waiting for the fullness of peace and joy. You might be waiting on provision for your physical needs. You might be waiting on a changed life situation, like a job or something. You might be waiting on a child. God will not deny what he's promised. Of course, there's a whole other study to be made here on knowing what is and is not God's will. We never want to be presumptuous with the Lord, but let's not worry about that right now. Let's just remember that God loves to do good things for his children. Psalm 84 verse 11 says that the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
I love that. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. We know all this to be true, that God loves us. God wants to take good care of us. Maybe God has even made a personal promise to you. That happens. I know God's made promises to me. The lesson to learn from this story is that God will accomplish his word. He will keep his promises, but you've got to trust his timing. For most of his life, all Abraham could focus on was the blessing itself. I don't have a son. I wish I had a son. Now I've got a son. Oh, is he not the right son? Can't he be the right son, Lord? Focusing on the promise itself. We often feel the same way. When you're looking for financial provision, that's about all you can think about, can't you? Just thinking about, are, are, are we going to get that money or not? Are we going to get a phone call saying that it's late or not? Are we going to get that raise or not? Or maybe all you can think about is getting out of that job that you're in or getting into a relationship with that person that you've had your eye on. And it's all you can think about. But God is less concerned with the actual blessings than he is with forming your character along the way. You know as well as I do, getting some things immediately minimizes their importance. And it, it can even make us shallow. When you always get what you want, the second that you want it, it minimizes and trivializes what the blessing actually is. Imagine God with his perfect perspective and his perfect timing, not withholding any good thing, knowing what you need, knowing what your character requires, and delaying and waiting just long enough to do exactly what he wants to accomplish in your life and give you the blessing on top of it. Sometimes we go through that process and we realize that the blessing we thought we wanted is not the one that we wanted. One of my favorite songs is from the movie Joseph, King of Dreams. It's an animated movie of the story of Joseph for kids. And there's a scene where he's thrown down into the pit in, after the incident with Potiphar's wife. And then the butcher and baker are taken away. And he's down in this jail cell by himself. And he starts crying out to the Lord, like, God, what did I do to deserve all this? And there's a beautiful song that it's called You Know Better Than I. And the name kind of says it all. He learns to accept God knows better than I do. And me being in this prison cell seems to be exactly what God wants for me right now. It's all about letting go of our demands for explanations. I've heard it put this way. Knowing who is more important than knowing why. Or the what that you might receive is not as important as the who who gives it to you. I urge you, let go of your anxiety about the fulfillment of certain things. There are sometimes we get stuck in our development as a Christian because we're waiting for something external to permit us to move forward. But that's not right. The Lord wants to enable you to move past that thing before you even receive it. Abraham is going to learn that lesson again or demonstrate that he's learned that lesson in the next chapter when he's forced to sacrifice Isaac. If it's a good thing, you should trust that God will not withhold it from you. And you trust his timing. And that if God is withholding it from you, it must not be the right time or it might not be good for you. Trust the Lord. As I said at the beginning, we've got to learn to view our lives through the filter of the Lord himself. That God knows what he's doing and he loves us and cares for us. And that his timing is absolutely perfect. Abraham and Sarah rejoiced and the world laughed along with them. We still kind of laugh at this. 
Through this, God was not just building their faith, but God was building the faith of everyone that was going to come after them. Consider that too, by the way. The brothers and sisters who would be blessed and learn to trust God through the delay that came to Abraham and Sarah. God might be doing the exact same thing in your life where he's delaying something good for you because he's trying to demonstrate to somebody else his sufficiency and his goodness. That's worth it, isn't it? God knows what he's doing, and we ought to rejoice that his timing is always going to be right. That's the high point. Isaac is born. Baby Yitzchak. You can practice saying that if you like. (laughs) But let's keep reading, because the story is going to take a tragic turn here in verse 8, and we'll read down to verse 13. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, Do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Well, in contrast to the high point of Isaac's birth, we come to what is undoubtedly one of the lowest and most shameful moments of Abraham's life. It says the child grew and was weaned. So this is probably based on how they did things then, about two to three years later. And Abraham gives a great feast. This is an appropriate time to do it because infant mortality was not what it is today. And so a child living through that early period when it's being nursed is is a big milestone back then. And also he's a proud dad and he just wants to celebrate his son. And he was a wealthy man. He he was a man that had communion with kings and, and warriors. And you can imagine the splendor of this party that he's throwing for Isaac, the joy and the feast. But Sarah during this event, sees Ishmael. And by the way, Ishmael goes totally unnamed in this story. He's just called the son of Hagar, the son of the slave woman. She sees Ishmael laughing. Again, we see a a use of the word that gave us Isaac's name, the word sachak, and it infuriates her. How we understand that word laughing, sachak, how we understand that word matters to how we interpret this passage. Because when she sees him laughing, Sarah is going to demand that Abraham send Ishmael and Hagar away. So he was laughing. Why is this such a big deal? We need to look at this. Now, this could mean exactly what it means on the face of it. That this is an innocent meaning of the word laugh. That he's having a good time at the party. Or it can even mean sporting or jesting, as in playing with baby Isaac. If that is the case, and that's what this is intended to mean then Sarah is guilty of horrible jealousy. And maybe she even sees the two bonding and she says, no way, it's not happening in my house. I'd say that it's probably true in any case that Sarah was very jealous of Ishmael. We've already seen this to be true. But it could be more than that. This laughter could also be a sarcastic laughter. You might have a footnote in your Bible where it says laughing in mockery, which is an entirely appropriate way to understand that word. In Judges 16.25, it said that the Philistines wanted to bring Samson out, who had been blinded and bound, so that, that he might give them a laugh, is one way to translate that. I use that same word, sachak. Now, 
if she sees teenage Ishmael mocking Isaac on his big day, or you've seen sarcastic teenagers ruin a party, right? It could be something like that. But there is a third possibility, which is that laughing is euphemistic language here. That that word laugh does not literally mean laugh, but that there's something more to it. That word sachak in the Bible has been used to describe what would be horrible things in this situation. In chapter 26, verse 8, Abimelech is going to know that Isaac and Rebekah are married because he sees them tzachak, laughing together. Potiphar's wife in chapter 39 is going to twice accuse Joseph of coming in to laugh, to tzachak, her and her husband. In Exodus 32, verse 6, in the story of the golden calf, it says that the children of Israel rose up to tzachak. They rose up to play is how that's translated. So, all of those contexts have a sexual connotation to them. So it is entirely possible that there was some kind of emotional or even sexual abuse going on here, which all of a sudden makes Sarah's reaction very understandable. It cannot be said for certain, but it is within the range of possibilities. All I can conclude from reading this and from my, my study is I doubt this was simple enjoyment of the party. There was probably some kind of malicious action from the teenage Ishmael towards his toddler brother, and Sarah saw it. And of course, she's already predisposed to not like this kid, to not like his mother. We can't know for sure, but there, there could very well have been a very serious thing going on here. Whatever this reason was, and the Bible does not give us an explicit reason, so we don't need to worry about it, Whatever this was, Sarah demands Abraham to send away his son and his slave woman. Do you see how she derides Hagar by calling her the slave woman? It's interesting, in verse 12, God is going to use a word that means concubine, or could even mean your, your second wife, not your legal, but your other wife. God is going to use a more intimate term in referring to the slave woman, but Sarah is going to use one that has no honor attached to it whatsoever. But she says, you've got to send this woman away, and you've got to get that boy out of here. He's not sharing anything with my son Isaac. And Abraham is distraught, it says. You remember the story, of course, in chapter 16, Sarah was the one that had the idea and said, we're not having kids. You need to have a kid with my slave girl, Hagar. This was legal at the time. You could have a child with your slave and raise him as your own son. It was done back then, but it was, of course, a, a profound lack of faith for Abraham. And when Hagar grew pregnant and it became abundantly clear that it was Sarah who was the problem and not Abraham, it said that she despised Hagar and treated her poorly. And also that Hagar became arrogant towards Sarah and she fled from Sarah at that point and God sent her back. You remember that whole story? It seems that things have not improved between Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael. But you see that Abraham disapproves of this. And I almost get the impression that he refuses. He says, no, I'm not sending her away again. We did this years ago. I'm not doing this. Yet God intervenes in the story. God appears to Abraham and tells him to send the two of them away. You almost see the parallels between this story and when God appeared to Joseph and said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Here the Lord is saying, do not be afraid to send this woman and your son away, as if 
God is, is saying, I know you're trying to do the right thing, but this is what I need you to do. He says, Isaac will be your chosen son, and it would not be right for Ishmael to share in the blessing that I'm going to pour out upon Isaac. But he also says that Ishmael, too, is going to become a great nation. Now, if you don't believe in God, this sounds like an excuse, but we, of course, do believe in God. So Abraham, as he's about to do to send away Hagar and Ishmael, is not just kicking them to the curb. He is putting his faith in what God promised to do for them and sending them away, even though we can see it would rip his heart out to do that. But let's address this here. Why would God do this? This seems so cruel to us. Send away your son and this woman who has lived not as a wife, but certainly not just as any other woman to you. It's entirely possible that they had a continued sexual relationship with one another. The language here would certainly allow for that. And he says to send them away. But God knew, I think, a few things. He had already determined Isaac is going to be the one to carry on the promise, and I do not want there to be a challenge to what I am preserving through him. Do you remember all of this goes back to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, when he said, I'm going to send one who will crush the serpent, the line of Christ himself. And God says, I will not permit there to be a challenger to that throne. Also, I think God knew there was no way these families are going to get along and that there needed to be a clean break here. And God says, Abraham, as hard as it is, that is the best solution to this problem. We're going to examine the humanity of this story in just a minute because it's, it's heartbreaking. But I do want to address, a, 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 I guess you could say, a spiritualization or an application of this passage. That sometimes when we have made a mess in our lives, a clean break is the only way to move forward. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you know these verses well, verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus taught us there to have a radical response to dealing with sin and the things that cause us to sin. And it's that similar kind of thing that God is telling Abraham to do here. Ishmael should not have been born. This was not God's plan for Abraham. It was Abraham's lack of faith that produced this child. And so, when God's promise came, it prevented the fullness of joy that God intended for Abraham. Because you can't even enjoy your child's birthday party because your wife and your illegitimate son are at odds with one another, and now they're saying it's him or me. That was Abraham's sin. It was his wife's sin too. There are times when our compromise with wickedness prevents us from experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. And you must be brave enough to separate from your compromise. So often we've got some nurtured sin that we've given a spare bedroom in the house. And yet we're not experiencing the fullness of life in Christ. And we want to blame God. When in reality... We've not made a clean break from our sin. There's an example of this in the book of Ezra. And just as this story shocks us, the story in Ezra shocks us too. When the children of Israel came back into the land and began to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the priest Ezra comes and 
He begins to teach them the law of Moses. And in chapter 10, they realize that all of these Israelites have intermarried with the Samaritans and the other nations living in the land. They've done the exact same thing that they were exiled for 70 years ago. And Ezra is distraught and brings it to the people's attention. And they say, fine, we're going to divorce all of these women and send these children away with them. Now we hear that. and We go, wait a minute. I thought the Lord hated divorce. Yeah, the Lord does hate divorce. We wonder if that was good. I've even heard people question if that was the right thing for them to do. But it illustrates the point very well. That when they realized that they were in sin, they were willing to take drastic measures in order to get out from under that sin. Perhaps there's a job that you have that you should not have because you know you're required at that job to do things that displease the Lord. And you've convinced yourself that God will forgive me because he knows I have no choice. Maybe there's a friend that you have. You've had this friend for years. But that friend is a persistent point of failure for you. That if you didn't have that relationship, you wouldn't keep getting drunk. You wouldn't keep getting high. You wouldn't keep going to those places. Because you wouldn't have them to tempt you. But you think, oh, I can't abandon them. That's just wrong. Maybe there's a hobby that you're into. And you've defined your whole life by it. You've defined your whole friendships by it. You, you, it's all over your social media. And you know that while that hobby itself might not be sinful, it sends you to a, a bad place. But you're like, I can't let that go. Everyone's going to wonder why. And then I might have to explain why. Maybe you've got an investment that prevents you from walking in righteousness before God. Whatever it is, you must cut it loose. You've got to get radical with it. Now, as soon as we say things like this, our mind is full of consequences of what will happen if I make a clean break. Yeah, let's look at that story in Ezra. I can't send away my child and my wife. God, God told us we shouldn't do that. Or I, I can't send away my son and, and my concubine because we're, how are they going to take care of themselves? Maybe you look at your life. You've got financial consequences. If I quit that job, I'll never work in this town again. You've got relationship consequences. If I cut off my relationship with my sister, my mom will never speak to me again. Maybe you've got other consequences that you're thinking about. And they prevent you from doing that. That is a sign that you are trapped and that you've got to get out. Abraham was trapped. The children of Israel in Ezra 10 were trapped. And they were headed for a mess. And God told them, make a clean break. Let me give you a very painful example for all of us. For almost the first 100 years of United States history, otherwise brilliant and great men could not face the issue of slavery. They fought for a revolution to bring liberty to themselves. They wrote things like we hold these truths to be evident that all men are created equal. They outlawed the slave trade. They railed against it, but they didn't do anything about it even though they themselves engage in the same practice, even though they, they wrote about the moral consequences and, and the terrible truth of slavery, and they joined these societies and, and they wrote books about it, they kept doing it. And they couldn't bring themselves to end it because, oh, there are economic reasons. The, the whole southern economy will collapse. Oh, there's social fears. How are we going to live among these people that we had enslaved? Oh, what about preserving the great American Union? We've got to hold it together. What happens if we're weak and the other nations want to come and invade us? Oh, those are all great reasons. 
But we hear them now and we cringe at them, don't we? We get angry about them. We're like, are you kidding me? You're going to continue doing this thing that you know is so horrible because your lifestyle's at stake? It became the greatest moral blot on our nation, and it required a bloody civil war to fix it. If you read the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln makes the point. He says, it might be that we've got to fight this war until every drop of blood we shed through slavery has been shed on the battlefield. I'm inclined to agree with him. We ought to have made a clean break. We, we, we say, I don't know how it would have worked, but we should have done it. We should have let the Lord sort out the consequences. What if we had been able to make a clean break at the very beginning, how things might have been different? But the thing is, we can look at that and, and you know, look down our noses at the founding fathers and say, oh, those cowardly men. What about your life? Where are you doing the exact same thing where you've got a mess on your hands and you know that it's wrong and you know that it ought not to be there and you tell other people not to do it, but you can't get rid of it because if I get rid of it, oh, there could be consequences. If you want to follow God, if you fully want to experience the joy of your salvation, you've got to cast out the compromise. God will honor that. When Christians make brave Dangerous steps of faith. God always comes in and honors that. Abraham had to do that. America should have done that. You need to do that. Where in your life are you harboring the remnants of your sin? And you're moving forward in so many areas of your Christian life, but it seems like the more you grow in Christ, the more that thing that you don't address keeps hurting. You've got that one tooth in your mouth, so to speak, that's infected. And the longer you ignore it, you can brush the rest of the teeth and they all look great and you floss and you get them straightened and you got Invisalign and it's all wonderful. But that one rotten tooth hurts more the more you clean up everything else. The dirty spot stands out when you start cleaning everything else. You've got to make a clean break. Cut off the hand, gouge out the eye. And God will honor you, I promise he will. Once again, notice God is intervening in the story. As I said, God is the one working these things out. And the hard decisions that were being made were in the hands of a sovereign God. That's a comforting thing for me, and I could talk more about that, that when you make a hard decision and you try your best to make a godly one, you can trust that the Lord is there guiding your decision-making. But let's read now verses 14 through 21. We looked at this from a a spiritual, broad application standpoint, but now we're really going to get into the nitty-gritty of this. Let's read verse 14 down to verse 21. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went away and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him 
from the land of Egypt. To me, this is the most horrible thing that Abraham ever had to do. It may have been the only solution, but it's not the less horrible for it. And when you mess around with sin, you end up in places where there are no good solutions. The time to make a good choice was way a long time ago. Abraham's time to make a good decision was in chapter 16. He sends his concubine, essentially his wife, his second wife, away. And his teenage son, Ishmael probably would have been 14, 15, 16 years old at this time. This may even have been illegal. According to some ancient Near Eastern laws, your illegitimate children, so to speak, your children that were through slaves or through other women, had legal rights to your inheritance, which could be one of the reasons Sarah wanted him gone. May not have been illegal. Abraham seems to have been a nomad, so he probably lived kind of by his own laws. But at the very least, it was tragic, and it was probably not looked very well upon back then any more than it is now. They depart into the desert, probably headed home to Egypt, but it says they wandered in the wilderness. Maybe they got lost. We don't know. But they run out of water, and Ishmael is near death. It's maybe it seems to me that Ishmael was deferring a drink so that his mom could have one because he gets near to death first. And she lays him under a bush and goes away to weep for the death of her son. And we see this pathetic picture of Abraham's child, dying of thirst under a bush in the desert while this slave woman who had been abused and everything else stands a bow shot away weeping and lifting up her hands and wailing for her son. How does this affect the way that we view Abraham? The Bible certainly, as I said, does not shy away from his failures or David's failures or Peter's failures or anybody. And neither should we. We shouldn't shy away from the failure and the character flaws of even our greatest heroes, even those we love the most, just least of all ourselves. You should be able to look at yourself with a clear, cold eye and know what you're like. The Bible is abundantly clear that even our greatest heroes are mortal and sinful. And this ought to do two things. Number one, it should take your eyes away from them and put them on the Lord. Because no man is worthy of your worship. No woman is worthy of your worship. Only God is. But number two, it ought to fill you up with hope. Because you can see in the life of Abraham and David and Peter and all the rest, a parable of God's grace. That God chose them anyway. Especially these days. Where the pendulum has, has swung to where we have gone all in on criticism of our predecessors. We look at every organization, every company, the nation itself, and we look and we see the wrong that they've done, and that's all that we want to talk about. We ought to look to ourselves and see that we've not left behind humanity's sins. The idea that somehow humanity is morally evolving to the point where we're not going to deal with sin any longer is nonsense. But neither should we idolize our heroes and ignore what they've done. To hold up somebody because you agree with one thing they did and to neglect some of the wrong that they did is, is simply not Christian. It's not biblical. Instead, our eyes look only to God, only His sublime perfection, only Jesus Christ, the one who was without sin. I mean, look at this. The real hero of this story is God. 
You have the sinful couple. You have the outcast slaves. And then in the middle, you've got God showing grace and mercy to all of them. Even when we don't think that Sarah and Abraham deserve it. Other cultures would look at the story and say, Hagar and Ishmael don't deserve it. God's in the middle showing grace to everybody. He's the hero. He's the one that we look to. Jesus did the same thing in his life. He called Simon the Zealot, the revolutionary. He called a tax collector, the Nazi collaborator of the day, Matthew. He called fishermen. He saved prostitutes and centurions, occupiers and sinners, the beaten down and the ones who were beating down, the oppressed and the oppressor. And he brought them all together in himself because all of those sins from the top to the bottom would be paid for at the cross. I'm going to read a long passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You might want to turn there or at least write it down. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 16 through 21 that pertains to this idea we're talking about. Paul wrote this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is the only one who stands without guilt. And so, out of his love and mercy, God decided to pay for all sins and forgive all sins. Which is why Paul says, if we're in Christ, we can't evaluate people according to the flesh anymore. We can't judge them based on where they come from, or what their daddy was, or the sins that they committed before. We can't judge them that way because God didn't do that with you. You might have a better moral standing than another person in one area, but you compare both of you to God and both of you are on the same team. And if God treated you in such a way that he did not regard your sin, then you're not allowed to regard the sins of others either. You're to show the same love to them that God showed to you. This is so necessary because when God built his church, when Jesus Christ choosing those who would come to him. He brought Hagar's and Ishmael's together with Abraham's and Sarah's. He brought the descendants of slaves and the descendants of slave owners together. He brought rich and poor together. Now, how are we supposed to get along? How are we supposed to be one when there's so many things that separate us? We can't minimize the pain that Abraham caused Hagar. You can't come in and say that the way one person treated another doesn't matter. Nor, nor can you dismiss all the good that was in Abraham, that really was there, the father of faith. David, the man after God's own heart, despite all he did, you can't just dismiss all that good because of some wrong things they did. No, 
We come to the cross and you become a new creation. And all of that good and bad doesn't matter anymore because you're in Christ Jesus and you are made new. And we don't regard each other according to the flesh anymore. We only regard each other how we regard Jesus Christ. You look at the person next to you like Jesus looks at you. That fixes it. That enables people to come together. We are able to be like God in this story, bridging the gap between the Abraham and the Hagar. Because we don't regard people according to the flesh anymore. Isn't that better? Oh, isn't that so much better that what Jesus Christ has done has done what no peacekeeping organization and no social activist group and nobody could ever accomplish? Ephesians talks about God breaking down the wall of separation in Christ. If you want to try and have that unity in anything else, it's not going to work because you're going to spend forever working backwards and seeing who wronged who. But God comes in and says, I wiped this slate clean. And you, now you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. At the present time, we have many who want to dredge up the past. And we have others who want to let it lie and ignore it or even to celebrate it. But you know what? As Christians, we don't play those fleshly games. Both of those things are regarding folks according to the flesh. We have a better solution. And his name is Jesus. In your own life, you might be Hagar in this story. You might have days when you're Hagar, where you're abused and you're kicked to the curb and you're left with nothing. Or you might be Abraham or Sarah in this story. Maybe you yourself have been the abuser or been the one kicking folks to the curb or been the one withholding something from somebody. doesn't matter. Your eyes must go to the Lord who forgives all sins and sets all captives free. When we start looking at each other through the eyes of faith and not of flesh, that's when we will see the reconciliation that we desire. I thought it was important to discuss that because this passage reminds us that God looked at Abraham as his faithful servant, his friend, even though he did all these horrible things. We might say, well, why, how could God do that? God did it with you. God looks at you and calls you his child, the bride of his son. He calls you in to sit at his banqueting table and call him Abba Father. And look at all the mess you've made. Shouldn't you be full of joy? and grace and mercy for those around you who hurt you? Shouldn't you be so willing to forgive at the drop of a hat because of all that you've been forgiven? The Bible says that whoever's been forgiven much loves much. So you've got to get with the Lord and let him show you how much he's really forgiven you. God takes care of his children. And in this passage, we see that God has taken care of Abraham and Sarah, but he also promised to take care of Hagar and Ishmael. So let's look at that now. We're at this pathetic scene. Ishmael is under the bush. Hagar is over there crying out to the Lord. The angel of God appears to her. This is the second time. We saw this in chapter 16, verse 9, that the angel of the Lord appeared to her. And he tells her, isn't this interesting? I've heard the boy. I've heard Ishmael. Which means that Ishmael is lying under that bush, and he cries out to the God of his father. And God hears him. There's a play on words there because Ishmael's name means God hears. God says, I heard. I heard Ishmael's prayer. And he renews the promises. Go back to your son. He's not going to die. You hold him up. I'm going to take care of him and I'm going to turn him into a great nation. He's going to rock the world, this kid. And that's when she sees the well. 
a lot of times it's when we finally learn to let go and call out to the Lord that we start to see the blessings that were there all along. And it says that Ishmael made it. He survived. And we don't hear much more about him in this book. It says that God was with him. Isn't that wonderful to think that all this time we're reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. At the same time, God is with Ishmael too. He grows up as an archer in the wilderness of Paran. That wilderness is south of Canaan, not quite to Egypt. So it seems that they were on their way to Egypt but decided not to go and he ended up living there. We're not going to see Ishmael again until the death of Abraham in chapter 25 where he and Isaac will come together to bury their father. And it tells us that he had 12 sons who became 12 tribes. Does that sound familiar? God's going to bless Ishmael just like he blessed Jacob. Do you remember the description that God gave Hagar of Ishmael in chapter 16? Chapter 16, verse 12, it described Ishmael this way. God said, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So the Lord was with him and was going to bless him. But Ishmael is not going to turn into a nice guy, and his descendants were not exactly going to be everybody's favorite neighbors. But we know that God has indeed blessed the Ishmaelites, and they lived up to their warlike, belligerent prophecy. The Arabs of today claim lineage to Ishmael, and it seems that that is, in fact, what happened. And I'm not Super familiar with all the details of how that works, but there are many people living in this part of the world that are descended from Ishmael. Now, we as Americans living on the other side of the world, we've had our run-ins with the Arabs, have we not? And we get frustrated. And sometimes as a Christian even, you look at these Islamic nations and you say, how can God be blessing them so much? They've got all this money, they've got oil, they've got power. They're always looking for a fight. God, how are you blessing them? God is blessing them because God loved Abraham. And God is blessing Ishmael as almost, you could say, recompense for what Abraham did to him. And you need to remember, too, God loves them. God loves those people. They are the great-great-grandchildren of his guy. And they need your prayers, and they need your evangelism because these people are deceived in large part. Muhammad himself claimed to be a descendant of Ishmael. For all we know, he might have been. But the Islamic faith claims to be the true faith of Abraham. They claim that Ishmael was the true son, that the blessing should not have gone to Isaac, it should have gone to Ishmael. And that is one reason among many why they refuse to acknowledge the Jewish right to the land of Israel. Because there is a deep seated centuries millennia old conflict here they worship at the kaaba in mecca which they claim abraham and ishmael built that's that big square thing that they go to during ramadan and, and they walk around it circumambulate as it's called they're looking forward to their messiah they use the term mahdi who's going to bring about their great kingdom the great caliphate that they talk about they have a law that they call sharia law it's, it's an inversion of everything that God was going to give to Israel. They even have a monotheistic God who they call Allah. But it's tragic because this was Abraham's greatest failure. God blessed that boy despite Abraham's failure. And yet the resentment that has been bred from that has been exploited 
by the devil in order to bring a great number of people into spiritual bondage. And they deserve your prayers and they deserve your pity and they deserve your evangelism and our mission efforts to get over there even though some of the worst persecution in the world comes from the descendants of Ishmael. They need Jesus. They want to know the true faith of their father Abraham. Then we ought to give it to them. And if we learn anything personally from the story of Ishmael, it should be to never compromise with sin, especially when other people are involved, because God hears. When you mess with somebody, when you ruin somebody's life, when you abuse your kids, when you neglect your family, when you have a run-in with a neighbor or somebody and you steal or you do something to them that is not right, God hears them. Don't mess around with that. Jesus said, love your enemies, love everybody. Not a bad place to start. Here we see Abraham driving out the Egyptian. Later on, we're going to see the Israelites driven out by Egypt when they've tasted the sting of slavery. It's interesting, isn't it, how it all flips back and forth. But Abraham should have known better. Whether this was legal or not, he should have known better. And we learn from this that God is gracious. God is far more gracious than we are. And that only God is good. You can't point at the sin of one man and say, that's so awful. No, we're all that way. It's only God that is good, which is why we as Christians, we, we don't look to other people. We don't look to princes. We don't even look to saints. We don't look to heroes of the faith as much as we love them. We look to the Lord and Lord Jesus Christ. We don't look to ourselves. We look to God and his purposes. We look at the story. We see only pain. We see sin. But God was working out his plan for two different nations, even through all this mess. And you can rely on that, that the story that is being woven in your life is God's story. And if you'll submit to it, it'll be a much easier ride getting there. It's not about trying to get our way with God as much as it is about finding out his way and then walking along that path to the best of our ability. Can you see how God is the main character of this story, really, and every story, really? A lot of interesting things for us to ponder here. And we're going to wrap it up. We're going to get to verse 22. And we're going to read through verse 34. This is a, we're going to make this quick. This is an interesting story. It doesn't have a lot of application for us, I don't think. But uh, just for time's sake, we're going to go through it quickly. So let me read verses 22 through 34. At that time, Abimelech, remember him? And Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. We're going through this quickly so that we can 
Just focus next week on the binding of Isaac. Abraham here makes a covenant with Abimelech of Gerar. This was the king of the city who had taken Sarah into his harem. You remember that story from last time. And it seems that Abimelech wanted a military alliance with Abraham. He brings his commander, Ficol, of the army. You remember back in chapter 14, Abraham was capable of fielding a fighting force that was able to win some fights. And now he's decided to live here. We already know that Abraham's got some spiritual pull with the Lord God of heaven. So Abimelech recognizes that it's in his best interest to have an alliance with Abraham. And they sign a non-aggression pact. And then in verse 25, you see that now that Abraham has an alliance, he feels comfortable bringing up the theft of a well he had dug. You can really see the distrust between these two men, can't you? Because Abraham had had his well stolen. Abimelech had been lied to by Abraham, and now they're trying to sort everything out, and all this stuff is coming to the surface. It says they cut a covenant. That's what the literal Hebrew says. And Abraham likely would have cut apart the animals like he did with the Lord in the previous story, and they would have walked between them. He sets apart these seven ewe lambs as a gift, and they call the well Be'er Sheva. Now, this could be either well of seven or well of oath. Hebrew does this a lot, where they will take a, a term that can mean two different things and use that to make a poetic point. So, Beersheba, a well of the oath. Be'er means well. Sheva either means seven or oath. So that's why it includes a detail about the ewe lambs. And Abraham is going to stay here. We'll see Beersheba come up a lot in the Old Testament. Philistine territory at this point. Interesting to think about that we're already seeing these Philistines and the first little bits of conflict, which of course will flare into open warfare by the time we get to Saul and to David. And Abraham plants a tamarisk tree there. Remember back in Mamre, he had the great oaks, the great terebinth trees. This also could be translated a grove of these trees that Abraham, I don't know, wherever he was, he planted these big trees. And he's going to worship the everlasting God. This is Jehovah Olam or Yahweh Olam, which means everlasting God. Abraham would set up places of worship everywhere he went, especially now he's established with his promised son. The thorn in the flesh of Ishmael has been removed, and they're finally able to kind of start living life unencumbered. God is the everlasting God. And being a Christian is all about recognizing his power, his authority over life, his authority over history, and planting yourself deep in him. Life and people are complicated. Sometimes you're up, you're at a high point, and that's all God, praise to his name. And sometimes you make a mess, or sometimes somebody makes a mess all over you, and you're beaten down. Guess what? God's there too. You've got to learn to look, not to people, not to circumstances, but to the God who rules over all those things. It's his story. It's his world. And he has a plan for your life. Abraham had a plan for his life. Ishmael had a plan for his life. And even though they made terrible mistakes, God still worked out the plan. God knew you in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5 tells us God sees us in the womb. Ephesians 2.10 tells us God laid out works for us to walk in. And you're going to mess up just like Abraham messes up. you got to know that God's grace is so wonderful that he will work beyond those things. And even though it might get messy and difficult and ugly, God is still with you. His will is good. His timing is perfect and his forgiveness is divine. Whatever stage you're at in your life and your story, trust that God is the one writing it down. 
Look to him, not to people. Maybe you've got to cut out some compromise and move on from it. Maybe you're looking at your situation and there is no good solution. You just got to trust that if you make a clean break, God will take care of it and move forward. We can try to figure out life on our own, but we're only going to make a mess. Through the highs and the lows, trusting God and serving His will is the only surefire way to thrive.